Little Luke and Big Luke, huh? Said I resemble that remark, so so appreciate that. Appreciate y'all letting uh, Little Luke get up and and lead a song this morning. That is, we were talking about what songs to lead uh, before service, and uh, I knew the lesson was on the Psalms, and and, uh, that is Griffin's song that he leads, or Little Luke's uh, song that he leads every time he gets a chance. But of course, going to a larger congregation now, he doesn't get as, as often. Uh, a chance to do that as uh, as he used to when we were at a smaller congregation. So I appreciate y'all letting him uh, get up and do that. It's, it's very good for him to do. Uh, we're going to talk about the book of Psalms. Today I'm going to start out with Bible trivia, just try to wake you up a little bit. How many chapters are there? How many Psalms are there? Yeah, just say it out loud. 150, that's right. What's the longest chapter? 119. What's the shortest chapter? Close. Kathy was closer. 117. 117, which is also the middle chapter of the Bible. Uh, So if you know the shortest chapter, 117, you also know the middle chapter of the Bible. Now here's, here's a fun one. Who wrote the most Psalms? Not a trick question. You can, you can guess this one. Who wrote the most psalms? David. David. You got it. Probably somebody else said it too. Katie got it. All right. David wrote the most. Now here's here's where the real Bible trivia comes in. You're going to win Bible trivia one day with this answer. Who wrote the second most psalms? Luke. No. No. (laughs) Asaph. Asaph wrote 12. David wrote 72. The sons of Korah wrote 11, Solomon wrote 2, and Moses wrote 1. The book of Psalms is a favorite book for many Christians. It comes as no surprise, really, to anyone who has seriously read them, contemplated them, studied them. Uh, There is no other book in the Old Testament that takes us to the heart of the religion of the Hebrews, of the Israeli religion, the Jewish religion religion. Without the book of Psalms, we might think of that religion as being one of just following a very rigid set of rules, right? But as we read through the Psalms and we see the devotion that they place in there, it's a book that shows us their their faith, their hope, their fears, their doubt sometimes, their guilt, their gratitude, their joy at the triumph of God, their laments at their losses. It's a very personal and heartfelt book, and it makes the religion of the Jews very heartfelt. We see that it's not just a matter of following a set of rules, that the Psalms contain the deepest inward thoughts of those who were following the Jewish religion. It is a book of devotion. It consists very different than the rest of the Bible, mostly of private devotions that have been made public. Most are written from the standpoint of a single person who is giving some kind of devotion to God. And in each that we see, 
we get to see into a man's heart as he communes with God. Without the Psalms, we would wonder how they did that in the Old Testament. How did individuals relate to God? We could easily see that impression of the cold, systematic religion, but instead we see a vibrant, treasured love for God. And the New Testament, of course, is the same. The God of the Old Testament and the New Testament is the same God. He's a God who treasures a relationship, a personal relationship, with each person. Psalms is a practical book. It's a book of study that allows us to get this rich devotional life out of it. And it's one of my favorite books. When I was younger and I was reading through the Bible, I didn't like reading through the Psalms very much. But as I grew up and got more mature and more things happened to me, sometimes bad things, I find that the Psalms are often a great comfort. We see how other people dealt with that and dealt with God through that. So we're going to take a look at several different ways of devotion that come out through the Psalms. Now obviously a book as rich and as long as Psalms is, we can't cover the whole thing in one lesson. But we're going to have six points and we're going to start with prayer. While other books are typically recording God's words to us, the Psalms contain, more often than not, men's words towards God. Now they are still inspired, but that being the case, there's obvious benefits that we can get from studying the Psalms on how we can apply this to our own prayer life. And the first of those, it comes out in Psalm 4, which is a song that we often sing, Hear Me When I Call. Are you familiar with that, that song? We sometimes sing out of our book. Hear me when I call, O Lord, my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. God exhibits a willingness throughout the book of Psalms to relate to us and to listen to us. In Psalm 39, 12 and 54, 2 and in many other places, the psalmist display this faith in a God who will hear them. They are not just saying this in the hopes that God will pay attention. They, they know God loves, cares for them, is paying attention to their prayers. I'm reminded of King Hezekiah. He received a threatening letter from the Assyrian kingdom. And he goes to God in prayer and he spreads that letter out before God. He lays it out before God in 2 Kings 19.14. Now, did God already know about the letter? Did he already know what was in the letter? Did he already know how Hezekiah would react to the letter? Well, yes, God already knew all those things. Yet Hezekiah is acting in a way where he's having this relationship with God. He's laying it before God. I'm taking it to God. And sometimes that's what we have to do. <coughs> sometimes we face difficulties and we don't know what else to do, right? So we take it before God and we leave it in his hands. And you, you see that throughout the Psalms, throughout the psalmists as they're interacting with God, that they are bringing these things knowing that God will listen. How much more we, who are in under the New Testament, we see the full revelation 
of God and his love for us in sending his son, how much more are we to come? You look at Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews is about being under a better covenant with a better high priest and, and everything is better under the New Testament. And in Hebrews 4.16, he says to come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace that helps in our time of need. We can know that God hears our prayer. The psalmists also reveal the primacy of prayer. What do I mean by that? Well, those whose prayers are recorded in the psalms They are not turning to God as a last resort. They are going to God first in prayer. Sometimes when we get into a desperate situation and we tried everything else, then we turn to God in prayer. But what we often find in the Psalms is that's where they go first. When we face difficulties in life, I know someone who just found out that they had cancer. They have cancer. It's a difficult thing. And the first place that they went was to pray to God. She said before she could even start to mouth the word cancer, she went to God about that in prayer. Primacy of prayer. We need to look to turning to God first. We see this in David. In Psalm 12.1 it says, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. David is concerned. He's looking out at the world and he sees that there there are not many who are living a godly life. And he's concerned about the next generation. He says this next generation is not concerned about godly things. Help me. Help me not to fall because of those things. Help me not to fall into temptation. In Psalm 73, which we'll talk about again on another point in a moment, but Psalm 73 is a very interesting psalm. It's Asaph, and he's pouring out his heart to God with regard to the discouragement and really doubt that has crept into his mind. He's dealing with a problem that's still a problem today. Asaph is asking the question that so many people ask and come to us and say, how can you worship a God who lets bad things happen to good people. Why do, Asaph's asking, why do good things happen to the wicked and bad things happen to the righteous? How is this fair? He's going to God and asking that question. I think it's a a bold thing to do, to go before God and say, look, I'm having doubts, I'm struggling, I don't understand how this can be. But then he says in 73 verse 15, he says, If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, I didn't go before the congregation of the people and speak my doubts and let them know that I'm struggling with my faith. I came to you, Lord, because I have faith in you. Primacy in prayer. He's going to God first, and he is not spreading this idea out. How many problems would be solved in the church today if instead of holding grudges and complaining and spreading gossip, instead, we don't do those things. We say, Lord, I'm not 
concentrating on that. I'm going to come to you. I'm having these doubts. I'm having these problems. Please help me deal with this. I'm not going to go throughout the whole church and spread dissent. I'm just going to deal with it with you. And if each member would resolve to do that, so many problems would resolve themselves. Psalm 73 is also a really good example of honesty in prayer. Asaph is not pretending that he doesn't have these doubts. We need, when we speak to God, we need to be open and honest with God. You can't hide from God anyway. God knows, right? In Psalm 5.8, so in, in Psalm 73, Asaph does that with his doubts. In Psalms 5.8, David speaks about his enemies. He doesn't pretend he doesn't have enemies, right? Neither should we. We should, in fact, not make any pretense before God about anything in prayer. Are we tempted? Don't pretend that you're not tempted. Go to God with that temptation. Are you burdened by what somebody has done to you? Go to God about that. Don't pretend that you're not struggling with that. Are you doubtful? Do you have doubts and fears? Don't pretend in prayer to be otherwise. Go to God. God knows what we need before we ask Him. Jesus talks about that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6 and verse 8. God knows what we need and He wants that relationship with us. He wants us to go to Him in prayer. All right, I said there were six points, right? And I'm on point one. But that's the longest one. (laughs) So I just don't want you to be afraid. (laughs) But often in Psalms, there's also a higher purpose in prayer that can be seen. What this means is the psalmists are not always going to God and just asking for what they need. They're often upset that people are not following God. In Psalm 74, 18, it says, Remember this, that the enemy has reproached, O Lord, and that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. Psalm 119, 136, Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. I think this can teach us that in our prayers, we need to keep higher purpose in mind. It's not simply about what we need and what we're struggling with. But there's a higher purpose. We're part of something that's bigger. We are to make our requests known to God, Philippians 4, 6. But we should remember that we are part of something so much greater than ourselves. The second point, praise. We sang a song like this just a few minutes ago, right? One cannot read the Psalms without getting this idea of praising God. There's numerous instances without, throughout the Psalms about this. Psalm 146 through 150 all begin and end with the phrase, praise the Lord. The idea is we are to praise God. So here's a challenging point to make here. How much direct praise are we giving God in our, our daily devotions, in our daily lives? How much honor and respect are we showing God? Certainly when we come here, we sing songs of praise to God. In our prayers, we declare that He is our Creator, that He is all-powerful, and that He also loved us so much that He sent 
His Son. But in our daily devotions, we need to be like that too. We need to worship God and recognize and praise Him. Look at Psalm 113. And verses 4 through 9. It says, The Lord is high above all nations, and His glory above the heavens. Who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high? Who humbleth Himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? He raises up the poor out of the dust, and lifts the needy out of the dunghill, that He may set him with princes, even with the princes of His people. He maketh the barren woman to keep house, and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord. He lays out the various reasons and the things that God has done for his people, reasons why we should be praising God. Point number three, meditation. Now, I'm not talking about some kind of transcendental Eastern religion meditation. I'm I'm talking about what do we think of on a day-to-day basis What are we focusing on? What are we concentrating on? What is our mind, as our minds spin, what is it meditating on? When thinking of a rich devotional life, and praise readily comes to mind, prayer readily comes to mind, but oftentimes there's another component, and that's this this idea of meditating. He avoids all... I'm sorry, the first psalm talks about a truly happy man, first in negative and then in positive terms, and he avoids all forms and situations. He says, verse 1, and he delights in the law of the Lord. Verse 2 says, in God's law he meditates day and night. What is this, this man, this happy man, thinking about? He's meditating on the word of the Lord. He's thinking about it. He's pondering it. The word is used often throughout the Psalms, this idea of meditating upon God in Psalm 63.6, on his works in Psalm 77.12, 143.5, and his word, 1.2. It's similar to the word in Psalm 2 in verse 1. It's translated imagine. The connection exists between those in the world who meditate and imagine bad things and plot their worldliness and their wickedness and God's people who should think on good things. This uh, really hit home with me recently. You know, I've heard my whole life, think on good things, right? But we really should apply that. When you find yourself tempted and falling into all sorts of difficulties and you start to think, about negative things, and it starts to eat you up, right? And you have trouble sleeping at night because of it. Stop thinking about it. Think on good things, right? Don't concentrate on the bad things. I understand that's difficult and it takes practice. That's why he says to meditate on it day and night. But we will find that when we fall into temptation, it is often because we are focusing and allowing our minds to go into that temptation, to think about bad things. When the world was wiped out by the flood, why was that? It's because man's imaginations were constantly on wicked things. They were always thinking about what bad thing can I do next, right? 
And God took care of that with a flood. But we can oftentimes be like that. Point number four, faith. Like all of God's Word, a study of the Psalms builds our faith. Those who penned them obviously were men of faith. In Psalm 23, which we sang part of today, David describes God as the good shepherd, right? Thus expresses his faith in the good shepherd. It's probably the most beloved of all the Psalms, Psalm 23. All Christians face difficult times. And when we do, we find in Psalm 23, we read, He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. In verse 3, but these are surely the right paths, right? They're the paths of righteousness. They're going to bring glory to the shepherd and He's going to protect us. But if that's the case, it means that the valley of the shadow of death is one of the right paths that we have to go down. It's one of the paths that he has to lead the sheep through sometimes. To follow God, we have to have faith in him, even through difficult and dark times. Thinking back to Psalm 73, where Asaph is expressing his struggle with doubt. And he's writing this after the fact. He's writing this psalm after he has conquered this doubt. He relates to us this difficulty that he's had in dealing with this apparent disparity between God being blessing those who are wicked and and those who are righteous often falling into difficult times. The problem was so great in his mind that it almost harmed his faith. But then it goes on to describe how he learned from God's perspective that the wicked were headed for eventual fall. They might appear to be prospering for a time, but God and God's people win in the end, even if you have to die. Asaph emerges from this struggle and dealing with it with God with greater faith. And one interesting thing to note through that whole psalm, we don't have time to read the whole psalm now, but but this afternoon, read Psalm 73. And you'll find that God doesn't answer his question. He doesn't answer it. He talks about it, but it's essentially saying, look, I I don't understand. I came to God with this question, and I still don't understand. I've tried to look at it from God's perspective, but what I found was by putting my faith in God, I can overcome it. And if we will only follow God as Asaph did here, putting our faith in God, we can overcome. Psalms are also faith building in the sense that many of them are prophetic. Our first mention of Jesus, the Christ, in the Psalms is in Psalm 2. In verse 1 through 6, we see the calm confidence of our King. No matter what's going on in the world, Jesus, the Christ, reigns supreme. Psalm 16 is like that too. Verse 10 can only apply to someone other than David. He says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Talking about the resurrection. 
It's mentioned again in the Sermon on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 at the founding of the church. And the significance is given in Acts 2, verses 25 through 31. There's another passage mentioned in Acts 2 from the psalm, from Psalm 110 and verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Talking about Jesus. What Peter says about this verse proves that it was written by David about the Christ rather than by someone else about David. Now there are other messianic psalms, but the point I want to make is that I'm mentioning these to show that what greater faith building is there than to look at these great prophecies that were made about Jesus and that were all fulfilled in Jesus the Christ. Fifth, a study of the Psalms can bring meaning to our life. We live in a confusing time period where a lot of people... Uh, particularly young people, are confused about a lot of things, about a lot of the things that are reported on the news, a lot of things that are on YouTube and, and social media. There are a lot of confused people out there. And people are looking for meaning and purpose. People want there to be a greater purpose, and they want to be a part of something big. God put that in us, right? Because he wants us to be a part of the church and he wants us to to have that meaning with him. That's where we find it. This is addressed in other books like Ecclesiastes where he tries all these things, but all these things are vanity. Fear the Lord and worship him. Follow his teachings. But they're also mentioned in the Psalms. Psalms 8 where David praises God for his majesty and then asks, what is man that you are mindful of him? The thought is then elaborated upon with this great description of what God has done for man, the exalted place that mankind occupies. It's clear that the most important feature of God's creation is mankind. The earth was made for man. And the rest of creation was placed here for mankind. Mankind is important to God. We see that also in Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 9. Those who feel that their lives have no meaning, no real value, should read Psalm 8. We find our meaning in the fact that God loved us so much and did all of this For us, we have a place, a grand place in his plan. And finally, our closing point is that the Psalms are a book for sinners. It's hardly appropriate, really, to close without directing attention to the penitent Psalms, those who are repentant and are coming to God and they're writing some of these things. They contain several prayers for forgiveness, reflections on their sin and being forgiven. And since all of us have sinned, Romans 3, 23, and even as Christians we are not without sin, right? that's 1 John 1, 8 and, verse, and also 10, no Christian should look over these points from the Psalms. 
And probably the best known is Psalm 51. It's written, again, by David at a time when he was overcoming a sin that had been in his life, right? Started out with adultery, led to deception, eventually murder. Isn't it interesting, just as a side note, you think of three of the greatest people mentioned in the Bible, Moses, David, Paul, murderers, right? All of them overcame and were forgiven from great sin. I've I've talked to people who think, well, God couldn't forgive me. I've done too many bad things to be forgiven. Those men are all party to murder, and yet they overcame and did great things in God's kingdom. And as I said, Psalm 51 is a meaningful prayer for personal forgiveness. Sorry. There you go. In in the Bible, there are several points from this we should make our own when we think about prayer for forgiveness. But note first the uh, the forgiveness that he's asking for because he's personally responsible. There's this sense of personal responsibility. Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash, wash me thoroughly from my mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me over and over again. He says, I have sinned. I realize I'm responsible for my sin. He was keenly aware. Rather than blaming anyone else, rather than blaming God, David bases his plea on forgiveness, on God's God's loving kindness and his tender mercy. Forgiveness can only come from God's mercy. He realizes that the source of sin in his life was his heart. And it's in regard to this that he prays in verse 10, give me a clean heart. When praying for forgiveness, the circumstances surrounding the sin is not the consideration. He's not making excuses for his sin. He knew that the sin had begun in his heart, and that's what needed to be purified. He's also reflecting upon the effects of his sin in his life, In verse 8, he prays, Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. He's had some godly sorrow that's led him to repentance. He's had some misery in his life because of this sin. He has now experienced it firsthand, and it's further evidenced by another psalm that he wrote where he said, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. That's Psalm 32, 3-4. The relief of confession and repentance here is expressed in 32.5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Look at the final two verses of Psalm 51. 
where he says, Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, which burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. David has realized that his sin, while is personal and he's personally responsible, has also affected others. He's realized that as the king of Israel, it has affected the whole nation, as represented here by Zion and the chief city Jerusalem. I think it would be good in our own personal prayers as we deal with sins in our life, personal forgiveness, if we were to remember not just the impact it has had on us, but on those around us. Our sins have an impact on us, on our family, on our church family, and on the world. And we need to ask for God's help to rebuild walls which have been torn down by our sin. So this morning I ask you, are you in need of forgiveness this morning? Now oftentimes when when giving the invitation you will say all the things that you need to do to become a child of God or say, you know, if if you are already a child of God but you're in need of prayers, then, then to come forward. But this morning what I want you to do instead is to focus on yourself, to think about is there any sin in your life that you're struggling with that's affecting others and that you want to make right this morning. If you want to become righteous before God again. And if that's the case, then you can come forward as we stand here in just a moment and we'll figure out where you are and where or how you need to get to where you need to be. We would love to do that. If there's any here this morning who are struggling with sin and you're afraid that you're lost you can know that you're saved we can show you how if that's the case for you please make it known come forward as we stand and as we sing <clears throat>